Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 39. If you have one of our Bibles from the uh, table over here, it's on page 34. We're nearing the finish line in Genesis. We have about seven or eight weeks left, and we're done in Genesis. Uh, this is exciting to think about how the Lord has, has brought us through and helped us see some really, really key things that, that we'll see then for, throughout the rest of the Bible, no matter where we go next. But right now, uh, we're going to be picking back up in the story of Joseph today. Last week, Grant Stouter took you sort of at a 30,000-foot flyover, right, of Joseph's life through the rest of Genesis. Well, today, we're going to get back out of the plane, so to speak, and back on the ground and kind of walk through some of the details here so that we can see uh, from from an up-close and personal view what God is doing in each step of the way along uh, this, this life of Joseph that we're given now, what we'll find is that Joseph's story is not actually that much like Abraham's or Isaac's or Jacob's. Much of their stories showed God's faithfulness to them in spite of their sinful disobedience to God, right? We've seen this pattern over and over from father to son, next generation, next generation. But in Joseph's story, through the rest of Genesis, we're going to see God's faithfulness to him still. That never changes, but we're going to see God's faithfulness to him in the midst of actually his faithful obedience to God. Where these other men failed, Joseph has, is going to succeed. He's going to, he's going to be faithful. He's going to be obedient to the Lord. From the very beginning of, of Genesis, faithful obedience to God has been critically important, right? Critically important. It's what God expected from Adam and Eve, and it's what he expected of his covenant people from generation to generation. But so far, the track record of obedience hasn't been so good, right? That reality has led us to understand why God works out his promises through messy people and messy situations. Why? It's all he has to work with. It's all he has to work with. It's also why we've come to understand that God never rewards sin, but he does redeem sinners. If you, if you learn anything, or if you don't learn anything else from Genesis, this is what you need to see. God does not reward sin, but he does redeem sinners. And everything that he has set in motion from the very beginning of Genesis is to drive us to that understanding. God is the redeemer of sinners, but we need to remember why God redeems sinners. One of our our, our church's foundational verses, Titus 2.14, says, He, being Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us. There it is. Here's the why. To redeem us from all lawlessness, from all sin, from all disobedience, and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works, where we actually want to do what God tells us to do. And we consider it a joy and a privilege to obey In other words, God saved us from our sinful disobedience so that by his grace and through Christ's righteousness, we can live in faithful obedience to God and display his goodness and his glory to the world. Back in Genesis 18, just before God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, remember, God doesn't reward sin. Sometimes he judges people immediately for it. We've seen that as well. Right before he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, for what he called their immense and extremely serious sin. He told Abraham that what he was about to do. He said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? No, here's why. Verses 18 and 19 of Genesis 18. 
God said, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him. So, so not just Abraham, but everybody in Abraham's family from generation to generation to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Obedience matters to God. I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. That's what God said. Joseph is the poster child in Genesis for what it looks like to keep the way of the Lord and do what is right and just. Okay? He's the first patriarch we've seen who's full of integrity. He's actually the only one in Genesis we'll see later that is, uh, uh, is described as, as one who has been filled with the Spirit. And he's the most promising candidate yet to be the long-awaited serpent crusher. We need someone who's perfect. We need someone who is faithful to obey in every way. Joseph right now, in, in that narrow view, now we know, right? We, we talked about this. Every week we talk about this. Jesus is the one. We need to remember that the perspective, Moses wrote this, right, for the, for the early Israelites. They're still waiting. They were still waiting for the serpent crusher. And every, every patriarch that comes, they go, is it him? And then he does something to disqualify himself. And we get to, jo- to, to Joseph, and now they're saying, is it him? And the longer we go in Joseph's story, the more promising it looks, okay? We need to keep that in mind. The context is important here. Today in Genesis 39, Joseph's obedience to God in the face of relentless temptation and cruel injustice is going to uh, put it on us. It's going to compel us to consider our own willingness to obey God and our, our own motivation for doing so. And so I want to pray and uh, ask for the Lord to, to guide us through his word, and then we'll get in to the message. Lord, your word is more desirable than gold. It's sweeter than honey. Your servant is warned by your instructions, and in keeping them, there is abundant reward. We are your servants, and we desire to please you. Let your word be our delight, because Christ is our reward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's Father's Day, which means it's the one day of the year where your kids try to be good so that you don't get mad, right? Okay, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I don't think it would be off base for me to say that as fathers, we tend to lose our patience with our kids more than we want to, right? And they're not quite as obedient with, for, to us as we would like them to be, correct? I see some dads smiling. But here's the problem, because this is the reality that we often see with our earthly fathers. It's easy for us to assume that this is the reality with our heavenly father, that he's just some angry dad waiting to snap when we do something wrong. But when we import the imperfections of our earthly fathers onto our perfect heavenly father, we become motivated to obey him out of fear that he might lose his temper if we don't. But the gospel reminds us that in his love toward us, because of the great mercy that he had for us in Christ, God poured out his holy wrath, which isn't sinful anger, it's righteous anger. It's just anger. It's necessary anger towards sin. God does not reward sin. He redeems sinners. 
but he always punishes sin. And so he has to do something with the sin of the sinners that he redeems, right? And so the, the, the gospel reminds us that in his love, in his mercy toward us, what did he do with his wrath? He poured it out on his only son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be with him forever, not just forgiven of our sins, that would be amazing, but also brought into his family as his adopted children, sustained by his love and his grace, never being abandoned, not ever, not once. When we think about that, our motivation to obey him becomes one out of love, his love for us and our love for him, rather than fear. So here's what we're going to see in Genesis 39 this morning. Because God has already made himself our reward, we should readily obey him at all costs. Because God has already made himself our reward, we should readily obey him at all costs. Let's hear the word of the Lord together this morning. Genesis 39.1. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the, and the captain of the guards, brought him from the Ish, uh, excuse me, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. Now this first verse here in chapter 39 ties us back to the last verse in chapter 37 where, where some almost identical wording is used. Okay? If you remember... Joseph's story started back in chapter 37. We, we, we began that a few weeks ago. And then we get to chapter 38, and it, like, it just sort of pauses right there in Joseph's story to tell us about Judah and, and the, the mess that he got into with uh, Tamar and, and emphasized on God's faithfulness to preserve Judah's family line in spite of Judah's own sinfulness. And that's the family line we learned that, that, that would produce the, the, the long-awaited serpent crusher. Jesus would be born from the tribe of Judah, right? Verse 1 here is signaling the shift in the narrative is coming back to Joseph, uh, uh, who, who stands in a sharp contrast to Judah that we just saw in chapter 38, right? So far in, in Joseph's story, we've learned that his brothers hated him because he was Jacob's favorite son and because he had a couple of dreams that pointed to a future day when he would rule over his family, and initially, his brothers wanted to kill him to keep that from happening, but instead, what did they do? They sold him to some slave traders who were on their way to Egypt, where, according to the last verse in chapter 37 and the first verse in chapter 39, slave traders sold him uh, to Potiphar, and now we're brought back into where we left off. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The, Lord blessed, the Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was a stud muffin. That's not what it actually says, but that's basically what it's saying. Joseph was well-built and handsome. We'll get to that in a second. 
Joseph's brothers had all abandoned him to slavery, right? But, but verse 2, and, and again in verse 3, we see that God was with him. This is a really important piece of information. Why? Because even though Joseph may have been abandoned by his own family, he was not alone, right? He was not alone. God was with him, and because God was with him, even as a slave, Joseph found great success. Look at the progression here. God was with Joseph, and he made him successful at everything he did. Potiphar noticed Joseph's success. He realized that it was because God had put, uh, uh, was with him, much like some of the other foreign rulers that we've seen throughout Genesis, recognizing God's hand of blessing on his chosen man. And so, seeing that, Potiphar made Joseph his personal right-hand man, and he put Joseph in charge of everything he owned. And as a result, God's blessing of Joseph overflowed to Potiphar into all that he had. This is God keeping his promise to bless those who bless you, to bless those who bless his covenant people. Verse 6 says the only thing that Potiphar concerned himself with was the food that he ate. In that day, Egyptians didn't eat with foreigners. Joseph is a Hebrew slave, so naturally the food time would be off limits to him. But we're told three times in these verses that Potiphar left everything he owned under Joseph's authority. Literally in the Hebrew, it says he placed all of it in Joseph's hand. Okay, I want you to keep that mental picture in mind because we're going to see something really similar to that here in a little bit. Imagine being put in charge of everything that your boss owned. Everything. Okay? Some of you are like, yeah. That'd be pretty sweet. Right? Everything, business operations, personal property, all of it, anything you can think of. And once he put it all into your hands, he never gave it a second thought. That's a lot of trust, right? That's a lot of of trust, giving all that you own, all that you have, all that you're in charge of over to someone else. If that trust was put on you, you'd probably feel a heightened sense of responsibility, a heightened sense of loyalty to the one who gave you that trust. But with that much unchecked freedom and control, you're bound to experience the temptation to take advantage of that for your own personal gain. Now, verse 6 ends by saying that Joseph was well-built and handsome. At first, that might seem like a random thought tagged to the end of everything else we just read, or maybe at best, it's like, listen, he was successful and good-looking. Like, he's the total package, right? But what it's doing is setting us up for what we're about to see. Joseph is going to encounter some trials here, some temptation. Look at verse 7. After some time, his, Joseph's master's wife, looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority in my hand. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. That doesn't mean that Joseph wanted her and his master wouldn't let him have him. Joseph just knows this is not right. And then he says this, so how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? 
Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now, this scene is a familiar one in Genesis, but it's, it's differences. It's the, it's the differences in this story that, that really helped this to stand out. Remember in chapter 12 when Abraham, right after God called him, it, it, it takes us to Egypt with Abraham, and he pretended that Sarah was his sister. Sarai at the time, that was her name, right? He, he pretended that she was his sister, and then he did it again in chapter 20 while they were traveling through Gerar. And then his son Isaac did it with his wife Rebecca when they were in Gerar later in, 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 uh, in chapter 26. In those cases, it was the foreign ruler that was pursuing the patriarch's beautiful wife. In this case, it's the foreign ruler's wife that's pursuing the patriarch himself. In those instances, Abraham and Isaac gave in to the temptation to lie because of their sinful fear of man. In this instance, Joseph resisted temptation because of his reverent fear of God. How can I do this immense evil? And how can I sin against God? This is also a rare instance in Genesis where sexual sin is avoided by a patriarch rather than embraced. Have you noticed that much of the sin that we see is a perversion of, of, of the relationship between one man and one woman for life, the beginning, the, 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 in the garden. So much sexual sin in, in Genesis. We've had to give so many warnings to parents saying, hey, this is in here. We're going to talk about this. Think of Abraham and Hagar, Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Bilhah and Zilpha, Zilpa. Judah and Tamar, right? These are just a few of the stories we've seen. Joseph has an integrity here that we've rarely seen in the book of Genesis. And this is no small temptation that he was facing. This isn't like, hey, there's one Kleenex left in the box. Should I take it and let somebody else throw it away? You've all done that, right? Or like, or like should I leave the Kleenex there so that I don't have to be the one to throw it away? Nobody, can you, you know, this doesn't happen in your house? Anyway. <laughs> or that, yeah, you don't want to finish the, t okay, anyway. This isn't a small temptation, right? This is, this is crushing weight. This is, listen, this was an invitation, an open invitation to commit adultery with the wife of the man who put all that he had into Joseph's hand except for her. This is no small temptation. There's no subtlety either in Potiphar's wife. Her only recorded words to Joseph in this whole story are brief and direct, sleep with me. Sleep with me. She left him no doubt about her desires and intentions. She made it abundantly clear that she wanted him and that he could have her if he wanted to. She was totally fine with that, but Joseph knew better. He knew that his master had put, uh, he knew what his master had put under his authority, and he knew what his master had withheld from him. Not only was adultery considered an immense evil in the ancient Near Eastern culture, in Egypt it would have been considered uh, an, immense an immense evil, but it's also a grievous sin in the eyes of God. It's immense, it's evil, it's wicked. Joseph would not trade his loyalty to his earthly master or to his heavenly master for sinful sexual gratification, no matter how many times Potiphar's wife threw herself at him, and she did it a lot. 
Remember verse 10? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. She wasn't just chit-chatting about the weather. She was relentless in her beckoning call. Come to bed with me. How is it that Joseph could continue to resist this relentless onslaught of temptation day after day after day after day? He saw it for what it truly was, and he knew that it was nothing compared to what he already had. God was with him. God was with him. What could be better than that? Proverbs 5, excuse me, 3 through 5 says, Though the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she is as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps head straight for Sheol. We, we, we need to see adultery for what it truly is. It's a honey-soaked stairway that leads straight down to death. That's what it was in Joseph's day. That's what it still is today. That's what it always is. And Jesus took it further when he said that everyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, if Joseph had looked longingly at Potiphar's wife as Potiphar's wife looked longingly at Joseph, then he would have committed adultery with her even if he never touched her. Pornography is a modern-day Potiphar's wife. It's a Proverbs 5 forbidden woman recklessly recklessly, and uh, uh, relentlessly beckons, come to bed with me. Even when you refuse and you try to avoid it, guess what? It'll find you. And it'll keep drumming that call. So how do you keep from wearing down? How do you keep refusing to give in to its relentless pursuit day after day after day after day? You do the same thing Joseph did. You remember that God is with you in grace and you relentlessly ask the question that Joseph asked in verse 10. How could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against the Lord? We give in to temptation when we become convinced that the thing that's tempting us will give us what God cannot or will not give to us. Let me say that again. We give in to temptation when we become convinced that the thing that's tempting us will give to us what God cannot or will not give to us. It's what led Adam and Eve to their sinful rebellion in the garden. It's what led to the Israelites' sinful rebellion in the promised land from generation to generation. It's what led to their exile from the promised land. Listen, and it's what leads to the sinful rebellion of our own hearts. Did God really say? Will he really do? Joseph's words are instructive to us here. He was clear about what it would cost him if he gave in to temptation He was a slave who'd become his master's right-hand man. Potiphar put all he owned into Joseph's hand. Nobody in Potiphar's household except for Potiphar himself had greater authority than Joseph. If Joseph slept with Potiphar's wife, all of that goes away. It's all gone. But the threat of losing everything wasn't Joseph's greatest motivation for resisting temptation day after day. No, he couldn't bear the thought of sinning against the God who was with him. 
That was the thing. And it wasn't because he was so afraid of God's temper. It was because he was so satisfied with God's love. God was with Joseph in power, in grace, in mercy. Is that your greatest motivation to resist temptation? Are you so enthralled with God's presence and grace and love and mercy in your life that you can't bear the thought of turning away from him to pursue something less? Joseph knew that he had found favor with Potiphar because he found favor with God. The beginning of this story made it very clear. God was with Joseph. That's the most important point in this whole passage. We'll see it again at the end. God was with Joseph, and all of his blessings flowed out of that glorious reality. It was Joseph's satisfaction in God that kept him from giving in to Potiphar's wife. How could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? You are not worth it. That's what he told her. That's what he's saying. Think about the temptations that you face day after day. They may not be sexual in nature, but every one of them is a temptation to, to an attempt to drag you away into an adulterous relationship because every temptation is a beckoning call for you to give your affections away to someone or something that is lesser than God. And if you're not absolutely convinced and satisfied that God is with you, then sooner or later you will give in to the relentless allure of whatever that temptation is. This was the constant failure of the Israelites. Even though God had chosen them to be his treasured possession and, and promised to be with them, they doubted his promises. They were dissatisfied at everything that he had to offer. They always wanted something more. Remember that Moses wrote this, the, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he wrote these, these uh, five, first five books of the Bible to this early generation of Israelites, the ones that wandered in the wilderness with their parents who had an opportunity to go to the promised land, but they, they doubted what God said. He said, I'll give it to you. And they're like, I don't think so. Have you seen the size of the people in there? They wanted something better. And what they got was death in the wilderness. They wandered for 40 years. The parents of that generation, they died as judgment from God. God does not reward sin. He punishes it. And sometimes he does it immediately. And sometimes he does it over 40 years. And this new generation of Israelites, do you think, listen, Do you think that it was important for them and the generations that followed them after generation after generation? Do you think that it was important for them to be reminded that God was with Joseph in his temptations? Do you think Joseph's words here were instructive to them as they heard the beckoning calls from the surrounding nations to intermarry with them and to worship other gods, to turn their affections and their allegiance away from, from God and, and on to lesser things? Joseph's story was a reminder to the Israelites that obedience matters to God. That's why he set the whole redemptive thing in motion because the first people failed to do what he said. 
And obedience should matter to them because God was with them. This is what the Israelites needed to see from Joseph's story. Isn't it also important for us to be reminded that Joseph was with God and God was with Joseph? We need to be reminded that Joseph needed God or, or, or we'd be tempted as we read his story to see how Joseph is faithful and to think, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. If you walk away from this thinking Joseph is the hero, you've missed the point. Joseph is not the hero. Joseph needed the hero. He wasn't resisting temptation on his own. Joseph's ability to resist temptation was directly proportional to his dependence upon and his confidence in the Lord. The same is true with us. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church about several ways that the Israelites gave in to temptation and sinned against God and how God responded to their disobedience each time with holy judgment, putting several of them to death. And then Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13, these things happened to them, the Israelites, as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you that is exempt, uh, that, uh, except what is common to humanity. Listen, it's nothing new for you, Paul says. It's all been done before. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. God's not providing the temptation there. That's not what that means. He's saying when you're tempted, God has an answer. You know what God's answer is? You know what the way out is that we look for? It's his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all of their lives by fear of death, by, by fear of, the, of the, the bad temper, by fear of punishment. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Listen, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 elaborates. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Listen, Jesus does not sympathize with us as a fellow sinner who has given in to sin. like we have. He sympathizes with us as a perfectly righteous, holy, obedient Savior who has gone farther in resisting temptation than we could ever go to the absolute end, 
never giving in, not even once. And he sympathizes with us as a merciful high priest because he suffered, not, not from his sin because he didn't have any, but he suffered under the weight of our own sin as he took it upon himself and died for it on the cross, shedding his own blood to make atonement for the sins of people who, like us in our weakness, have given in to temptation and sinned against God time and time again. If Jesus gave in to temptation even once, listen, he couldn't be the redeemer. He would need a redeemer but because he is the redeemer and we've come to rely on him through faith, what do we get? We've been forgiven and cleansed of all of our sin. We've been clothed in his righteousness. And because we have Christ's righteousness, God looks at us and sees holiness and, and purity and perfection. And he actually puts his spirit in us to live inside us, to dwell in us, to help us to draw our affections greater to, to, to greater and greater affection toward him and our desire to please him. You know what else that means? It means that we're never alone when we face temptation. God was with Joseph. Listen, believer, God is with you. We don't have to try to resist what we can't in our own strength. Why would you try? We do it all the time. I say that as one who knows firsthand what that's like. It doesn't work. Instead, God's given us everything that we need to resist it in his strength. Listen, we are all adulterers. Why? Because that's what sin is. It's spiritual adultery. It draws our, our affections away from, from Christ, our allegiance away from Christ, and puts it on to something lesser, someone lesser. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Christ is committed to his adulterous bride. Think about that. He's remaining. He's staying with us. And he alone is able to present us to himself as holy and blameless without spot or blemish, because he's cleansed us from every adulterous sin, past and present and future, and he's provided all that we need to resist the temptation to turn away from him. When our sympathetic Savior has captivated our hearts, listen, we will flee from sin and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, right? Like we saw in our 2 Timothy 2.22 this morning. We'll run to him when we're tempted to give our affections away to someone or something else, is your heart being captivated by Jesus? Is there anything that's drawing you away from him? If you don't have Christ, you need to understand this. You don't have a way out of temptation. You can try to resist it in your own strength. You might succeed for a while, but sooner or later, that relentless pursuit beckoning you away It'll either wear you down or you will grow an attraction to it and you'll go with it. Temptation itself is not sin. We need to understand that. Christ was tempted. He was tested. 
But giving in to temptation is sin. We need to understand that. And sin is rebellion against God that leads to death and eternal suffering under his righteous, just, holy, necessary wrath. Why? Because God never rewards sin. He always punishes it. That wrath is for you. It's for me. Unless Christ takes our place. We need to understand that. When you rely on Jesus through faith, you're trusting in exactly that, that he has taken your place as your substitute and he's paid the full price for your sin. Listen, the greatest temptation that that we all face is the temptation to live for ourselves and deny our need of God and we've all given in to that temptation many times over the course of our lives. But if you no longer want to give into that temptation, if you feel the weight of that pressing against you and you desperately want to resist, that is evidence of God's grace at work in your life. Why not flee from that temptation and run to, to Jesus? Give your heart to him. Confess your need for his rescue. Put your hope in his forgiveness and rest in his presence with you with you. Sometimes fleeing from temptation isn't just a metaphor. Sometimes it's a literal thing. Let's look at verse 11. Now one day, Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped, and he ran outside The text doesn't tell us why the household servants weren't in the house that day, but regardless of the reason, was this a good situation or a bad situation for Joseph to be in, alone with the woman who had day after day openly been trying to seduce him? Good or bad? Bad, right? Part of resisting temptation is recognizing the situations that leave us vulnerable and staying away, avoiding those things. Are there any bad situations that you've been walking into or near instead of avoiding completely. Now, let's give Joseph the benefit of the doubt and assume that he expected, like every other day, for the household servants to be there when he got there because he didn't mess around when Potiphar's wife aggressively took advantage of the situation and grabbed him. There's no hesitation on his part, right? He didn't linger there entertaining the thought of sleeping with her. He didn't decide that caressing would be okay as long as they didn't go all the way. No, he ditched his outer garment to escape her grasp and he hightailed it out of the room, out of the house. He ran because Potiphar trusted Joseph. He put everything he owned into Joseph's hand under his authority. And in a twist of irony, because Joseph didn't trust Potiphar's wife, and he fled from the house, he left the one thing he owned in her hand, his outer garment. That created a problem for her, and she had to explain what she was doing with it. Look at verse 13. When she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make, a, make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. 
And then she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. Now, Potiphar's wife undoubtedly wanted vengeance against Joseph for spurning her advances. But she also needed to cover her tracks. And there's a good chance that she was afraid that Potiphar would believe Joseph instead of her. Think about how much he already trusted Joseph with everything, right? There's collateral there. There's trust built up there. She needed to add some credibility to her story, and so she called the household servants first and tried to get them on her side. But she'd been trying to get Joseph to sleep with her day after day. Surely, as they've been in the house, they would have overheard that conversation probably more than once, right? So she's already sketchy to them. And so she needed to redirect their disapproval onto Joseph. If she could get them to resent him, then she'd have a better chance of convincing Potiphar to believe her lie. So first she blamed her husband for for getting Joseph in the first place. And then she said that Potiphar brought him there to make a mockery not only of her, but the entire household. Like, that includes you too, servants. She emphasized that Joseph was a Hebrew. Well, that got him mad. She's reminding them that this non-Egyptian became their boss. Then after getting them all fired up, she just laid the, the lie out. She flat out lied. She said Joseph attacked her and left his garment behind when she screamed for help. Over and over again, Joseph had refused to go to bed with her. Literally in the Hebrew, he refused to lie beside her. Ironically, after he fled from the house in yet another refusal, what did she do? She put his garment beside him, or or his garment beside her, in order to make Joseph look guilty when his master came home. It's the second time that we've seen in Joseph's narrative that one of Joseph's garments was used to deceive someone else at his own detriment. Joseph, you need a better wardrobe, right? Potiphar's wife told. Potiphar, the same story that she told the servants, but with a few small tweaks. She still blamed him for, 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 for uh, bringing Joseph into the household, but she said that Joseph intended to make a fool of her. She, she made herself look like the, the, the victim there. This time she was careful not, not to imply that Potiphar intended to bring embarrassment on the whole household. She didn't want to make it think that, that he, she was making him look bad in front of everybody else. She also made sure to remind her husband that Joseph was a Hebrew, but she added a detail that she left out when she was talking to the household servants. She said, she she mentioned Joseph's status as a slave. The Hebrew slave you got. Listen, when you're trying to get slaves on your side, you don't tell them that a Hebrew slave made a fool out of them. You tell them that a Hebrew man made a fool out of them. You focus on his ethnicity because that's what they don't like. They understand the slavery part. But when you're trying to get the master of the house to side with you, you tell him that one of his slaves, one of his Hebrew slaves undermined him. That guy that you gave all that trust to, look what he did with it. Look at verse 19. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious and he had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. And so Joseph was there in prison. The text tells us that Potiphar was furious after hearing his wife's story, but it doesn't clarify whether he was furious at Joseph or at her. It's possible that he didn't believe his wife, and at least not entirely. Remember, verse 3 told us that Potiphar recognized that the Lord was with Joseph, and everything that he did was successful. 
There's trust there. There's collateral there. That's why Potiphar entrusted him with everything he owned. His wife had essentially accused Joseph of attempted rape. Typical punishment in ancient Egypt for that crime was not imprisonment. It was execution. The fact that Potiphar put Joseph in prison instead of executing him suggests that Potiphar doubted the credibility of his wife's accusation, but he also couldn't ignore it altogether, and so he had to do something about it. It's, it's possible that he was really angry that his wife's foolishness cost him his most trusted and successful servant. He could not punish him. He had to do something. But what about the cost to Joseph himself? He was unjustly imprisoned for keeping his integrity, for remaining loyal to Potiphar and to God. Sometimes faithful obedience to God comes at an unfair and costly price to us. We live in a broken world that's prone to reward sin and punish righteousness. That's why we need to have a clear understanding of what is truly gain and what is truly loss. Listen, if you lose everything in this world, wealth, status, power, reputation, relationships, whatever else the world values, but you still have Christ, you haven't lost anything of eternal value. You haven't lost anything of ultimate value. But if you trade Christ in for any of those things that the world loves, you've given up the one thing that is immeasurable, in value, immeasurable. If we're going to be willing to suffer injustice without compromising integrity, we have to remember and rejoice in the gospel reality that Christ himself unjustly suffered for our sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. We must remember that Christ himself is the source of our integrity. He is our righteousness. He enables us to live righteously in faithful obedience to God. When our hearts are captivated by Jesus, somehow, in God's good grace, we're able to rejoice as we share in his sufferings, knowing that we will also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed Joseph's narrative began in chapter 37 with a foreshadowing of his rise to prominence. But so far, he's only been reject the, the subject of injustice at the hands of others, first from his own brothers and then from Potiphar's wife. He's gotten the short end of the straw so far, right? But the God who keeps his promises would, would take what others meant for evil and work it together for Joseph's good. Look at these last few verses, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. And he extended kindness to him. He granted him favor in the, with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And the Lord made everything he did successful. Not once, not one single time in this entire story did God abandon Joseph. Not once. He was with him. We were told that in the beginning, and we're reminded of that here in the end. Joseph had lost his status as Potiphar's right-hand man. He had lost his authority over all that Potiphar owned. But listen, he did not lose God. 
Verse 21 says that the only, not, not only was the Lord with Joseph, but he also extended kindness to him. The Hebrew word there gives the sense of, of God's covenant faithful love. God is a promise-keeping God, and even when the people he's made covenant promises to are unjustly stuck in prison, he doesn't leave them there. And in God's kindness, in his faithful covenant love to Joseph, he granted Joseph favor once again with the ruler of the place, with the warden of the, the, the jail, the prison. And once again, everything was put into Joseph's hand under his authority. He became the warden's right-hand man, and the warden put him in charge of everything that was done in the prison. The warden had total trust in Joseph. And he didn't concern himself with anything under Joseph's authority. And the Lord made Joseph successful in everything he did. Now, we know this. There's more to Joseph's story. God had a greater purpose for Joseph's imprisonment. We'll see that as we go along. But we don't want to miss God's faithful covenant love and his presence with Joseph here. And we also don't want to overlook Joseph's faithful obedience to the Lord here. Both are important. God was with Joseph, and Joseph was committed to God. These realities are two sides of the same coin. No matter what it cost him, Joseph would not compromise his integrity and give in to temptation because he already had God himself. There's nothing greater to get. Because God had, has already made himself our reward, we should readily obey him at all costs. Because anything we lose is nothing compared to him. His presence with us doesn't guarantee that we'll live a trouble-free life, but it does guarantee that he will preserve us with his covenant, faithful love in the midst of any trouble that we face, no matter how unjust that trouble may be. So day after day, after day, after day, may we grow stronger in our resistance to temptation because day after day our hearts are growing more and more captivated by Christ. May we be so satisfied with his presence that we're convinced that the cost of giving in to temptation is far greater than the cost of resisting it. And may, may we live in faithful obedience to the one who's already faithfully given himself to us forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithful covenant love shown perfectly to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that because of him, we have all that we need for life and godliness in this world. To trust you, to obey you, to do what pleases you, and even to want to do what pleases you. That you've given us your spirit to dwell in us so that we're never alone when we face temptation. And in your kindness and grace and patience, you carefully and lovingly remove the sin that's left in our hearts as we run to you. May we always do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.